in milliseconds, I start thinking about, I can't say goodbye to anybody. This is ridiculous. Within 10 to 15 seconds, I'm just going to be vaporized. I'm going to hit the ground. It's not going to hurt one bit. All of a sudden, I'm going to be gone from a conscious mode to I'm gone. Welcome to Pod Bless America. I'm Jim. And I'm Dan. And today we got a bona fide American hero. Oh, we're bringing heroes in. We're bringing, he's rolling his eyes. <laughs> he's rolling his eyes. Listen, so we're trying to get into these long form discussions um, and we want to start bringing people in that make America great, right? That have devoted their lives to making America great, that are currently making America great. Have unique stories. Have unique stories. Exciting stories. Sometimes sad stories. Seen crazy like, shit. Like Stacey Goodman. Great story, but sad. Now you guys have met my sister. Yeah, Mary. That was crazy. That was uh, that was that was a rough episode. Uh, but today I brought my dad in. Um, you called your dad. I called my dad, <laughs> and I brought him in because my dad, when I was growing up, was always the coolest dad. Nobody could ever touch me when I was in school. Guys would be talking about their dads were accountants, their dads were bakers, their dads whatever. And you know, my dad works in an insurance company. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. You know what my dad does? <laughs> He was a U.S. Navy pilot for 10 years. 11. Well, pretty close to 11. 11 years. Left there, joined the FBI. We went to Seattle for two years, first duty station. Then we came out here and we were here since 1980. Ran the FBI SWAT team for how long? 13 years. 13 years. He was the man. I had the ability to work with him once with my first dog. And oh, that's cool. I, I tell people this story. Like, I'm used to my dad being funny and joking around and stuff. And I got there for that briefing. Buddy, there was no joking around, man. It was like he, a different he flipped, dude. He flipped a switch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a different dude, man. I remember sitting back like, holy shit. There's no, yeah. There's and no how old were you around. at that time? Well, I was new. I don't know. 26. Okay. 27. I okay. Mean, that had to be mid-90s. Yeah. Yeah. So, it was my first dog. And we hit for you. I think we found a bunch of cash. So, he's here today. Talk a little bit. I think we're going to talk about Vietnam. He's got some stories that uh, need to be out there. You know, Vietnam vets are getting to the point now, like World War II vets are, right? We're losing, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but we're losing how many a year? Do you know? Do you even know the numbers? I mean, it's got to be thousands now. It's got to be. I mean, because they're all mid-70s, early 80s. And when those stories are gone, those stories are gone. You could never hear those stories again, right? I can tell you a story that he told me, but I'm going to forget details. I'm going to make them up because I got to make the story flow. You're never going to hear that story again. It's so important. we get him in here and he's going to tell some of these stories today and they're going to be here forever. And no matter what happens, if this podcast crashes and, well, I shouldn't say that, crashes and burns. Uh, wow. Yeah, well, since we're we'll be talking about that, but <laughs> if this podcast is over tomorrow, we'll always have these stories at least that I can go back to, that my kids can listen to. Oh, I agree. You know? I agree. Um, it's important to be able to hear the voice. Right. So anyway, dad, uh, Jim Larkin, he's not, I'm not a junior, by the way. Like I am. You, you are a junior, right? We always, every generation we would, uh, we'd switch up the middle name. Okay. So he's Jay, J-A-Y. I'm Joseph. Okay. If I would have had a son, it would have been Jay. My grandpa was, uh, Joseph. His dad was Jay. So we avoided the the junior, second, third, all that stuff. You know? So you, so technically you could have been like Jim Larkin, the fifth. Or fourth? How far back would it have gone? 
He would have been five, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Damn, the, the Roman Morgan. numeral five out. I, I wanted that one. Bro, that's like that's like king shit. <laughs> James the fifth. James the fifth. <laughs> so we have James the fourth here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, so anyway, we, yeah, uh, we appreciate you coming. Yeah, on. man. So, Dad. Yeah, you're you're here. Let's uh, let's start from the beginning. What, where where you came from, as far as uh, when when your parents brought you up. I want to hear a little bit about that in a nutshell. Yeah, how you became a hero. Just a quick story on Jimmy. When Jimmy went in the uh, U.S. <laughs> Here we go. Wait a minute. This is not the, this is not the, is this the, oh, hey, hey, who's, shut your commie mouth and let him talk. Hey, it's a hero. Who's doing the talking here? <laughs> Jimmy went in the army, Shit. wished him, you know, drove him down, wished him, and then we were cleaning out his room. And uh, when you're cleaning out the room, you always change, go under the mattress and see mm-hmm. what's under the mattress. Mm-hmm. And I, my heart was in my throat. Am I going to find a bunch of Playboys or a bunch of love letters or am I going to find marijuana? What am I going to find? <laughs> what I found is 18 progress reports oh. of unsatisfactory uh, okay. progress at school. Yeah, that was so, back before uh, the parents had to sign it. It kind of tells you what you're dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he tells us. You were hiding story. evidence. It's getting hot in here. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I might have to cancel this show now. God. No, but let's, let's jump back and start oh. back to, to your upbringing. That's a true okay. story. I, I grew up in uh, Detroit, Michigan. My dad worked for Ford. Go Blue. Uh, I was born in Ann Arbor. He uh, During World War II, my dad uh, was a night shift supervisor at Willow Run building the B-24 bombers. Uh, so I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then I grew up in Detroit. I went to Detroit Public High School, largest high school in the state of Michigan, Redford High School. Really wasn't a very good student. I was an only child. Uh, my dad was pretty dominating. My mom was ill the whole time I was growing up. She had some like postpartum issues, I think, that she never really recovered from. So, sure. uh, And then Alzheimer's. Well, they, they, she didn't have the Alzheimer's early on, but right. I mean, she was ill. My So I really, I, my dad kind of raised me and uh, I really wasn't a very good student, never had much confidence in my abilities. I went through high school just because I was supposed to go to high school and I got reasonable grades because my dad stressed I needed reasonable grades for what I had no idea what I need the reasonable grades for. But he always told me I was going to be an attorney. I was going to uh, be an international law attorney or, or something like that. And I just said, oh, well, okay. And I got a, my grades were good enough. I got into the University of Michigan. So I went to the University of Michigan. Hail to the victors. Still uh, kind of a rudderless ship. I'm going to the University of Michigan, think this is a fun place. I love the football games. I love the Friday night parties, but I just wasn't a very good student. And I reflect back on my days at the University of Michigan thinking, I wasted a good education there. University of Michigan was a good school, but I had no goals in mind. I don't even know why I was going there. In the back of my mind, I thought, my dad always wanted me to be an attorney, and I thought, I don't want to do this international law stuff, but I probably would like to be an FBI agent. And back in the day, the FBI was really hiring uh, a lot of accountants and a lot of attorneys, and I figure, if I get that law degree, I could be an FBI agent. And that was because my cousin, who was in Detroit, uh, he was an FBI agent for a short period of time. Older he, cousin? My cousin. Was he older than you? Oh, yeah. So you, he, he looked, was you much looked up, older. You looked up he was to much him. older. This is like when I was in grade school, high mm-hmm. school, and he used to show me secret secret moves and all that, how to, <laughs> how to take guys down and control guys. I thought this is pretty good. All right. <clears throat> Grab me by the throat. <laughs> so uh, I, I thought in the back of my mind, I'd, I'd, at some point, I'd like to be an FBI agent. And those were different days, man. The FBI back then was, I mean, well, they was, were well-respected. Yeah. And, uh, but you, you did need, Hoover was really big on accountants and, and attorneys. So I thought, well, maybe if I have that, that 
law background. Uh, so I went to the University of Michigan, just kind of, again, no real goal in mind, trying to get through, trying to take, I was an English major there. I don't have any idea why I was an English major, what I hope to accomplish with it. Never really enjoyed it either and never really did very good at it. Uh, then my uh, senior year, it was uh, like the spring of 1965. The Vietnam War was just getting cranked up. I was down in, in the undergraduate library of the University of Michigan. I got tired of reading whatever English book I was supposed to be reading. And uh, I saw a Time magazine laying there, and I picked it up. And the Time magazine article was about a Colonel Robinson Reisner, who was really an American hero back at that time. He was a Korean vet and I guess, World War II. But he was a, a colonel flying F-105 Thunder Chiefs in uh, Vietnam uh, out of Thailand. And he was standing there with his helmet next to an F-105 Thunder Chief. And that's the first time I ever in my life remember saying, that's something that I would really like to do. I'd like to go fly F-105 Thunder Chiefs. I'd like to go to Vietnam. I'd like to be just like Robinson Reisner. You know, I put the magazine down and I thought, once in my life, I know what I'm, I want to do. But I thought, you know, I'm not a very good student. I, I don't like to study. I probably could never do this. But I think it's important for people to understand when you find something you really want to do, you can do it. If you, if you don't know what you want to do, it's hard to exist in life. It's hard to, it's hard to study. It's hard to program what you want to do. But once you realize, I'd sort of like to do that. That's what I want to do. So I went down to Selfridge Air Force Base. I took the test. They said I qualified for the Air Force flight program, and I was, you know they're getting ready to put me in. And then all of a sudden, because of my dad doing some finagling out in California, I got accepted to Hastings Law School of the University of California out in San Francisco. And I thought, oh man, I don't want to do this, but my dad is so adamant I got to be an attorney. And that was what year? That was April of 65 that I saw the article. So I graduated in 65. So I, I decided to go to Hastings for a year. It was sort of me, against my... Just real quick. This is why I have him here. <laughs> I never heard this before. I never heard why you chose to go into the Navy. I never heard about this colonel. I never heard that you read that while you were sitting there in Michigan. Like, yeah, this yeah. is the stuff right yeah. here. Yes. I, I and, never knew this. But also, like, did the San Francisco vibe of the time help make you think, like, I want to go see Haight-Ashbury. I want to, like, be a part of that. Like, did that even factor into anything, or were you not a part of that? that no, I was, not, and I was not part of that. I, uh, I was living in downtown San Francisco, and my dad, he had some connections out there. He was with Ford, but he had some connections with some pretty powerful dealers, Ford dealers out in the California area that— pull some strings to get me into Hastings because I couldn't get into the University of Michigan or I probably couldn't get into too many places because I, I was a marginal student at Michigan, really. Sure. And I didn't have a lot of confidence in my ability, but I decided to go. And again, I, I always reflect back on, that was a big mistake going to law school. I didn't enjoy it. I What I did is I wound up flunking one course. So they told me, you stay out a year, you can come back but you flunked that course, but that, that's neither here nor there. So I go to the, I go out there. And you uh, need to understand my granddad to understand why he went out there. Right. I mean, he was, I, I loved him and he was great, but he, yeah, he, he was, was very overbearing. Overbearing. I mean, it was his so, way. From the outside looking in, I have to imagine that when he worked at Ford and saw these international lawyers and all these other lawyers, they're driving around in Cadillacs and, and they got giant, giant salaries and they're really not doing a lot. And he probably looked at them guys like, these, these guys, this is, this is what you should do. Uh, you know what? His, his, his big thing in telling me I wanted to be an international lawyer was there's going to be litigation on who owns the moon, son. 
and you're going to be part of that litigation. Who owns the moon? Yeah, Antarctica as well. And, you know, and he, uh, he thought that that would be really interesting. And I suppose mm-hmm. it would have been interesting, but there's no way it was going to be. For a lot of for- I, that's a lot of foresight. Uh, I, Holy uh, shit, really? Who yeah. owns the moon? I who heard. owns the moon? That's all they ever tell. Don't, yeah. And he was always telling me, don't you think it'd be important to know who owns the moon? And he always used to tell me, he said, not in my time, but in your time, somebody will walk on the moon. And it turned out somebody walked on the moon. In his time, yeah, yeah. it was pretty pretty interesting too. But anyway, I, I didn't get part of that uh, hate Ashbury scene at all back during those years, although it was really kicking up. But Vietnam was also kicking up and all the protests were starting to kick up. So I was out there the fall of 65 and I had completed my year at, at uh, Hastings. And I did all right, but I flunked that one course and I didn't even study for it. I just, I said, I don't even want to, come back here. I'm done with this. So anyway, while I was out there at uh, Hastings, I uh, I had to study a lot. Law school was pretty demanding for studying, but every so often I'd sneak out and have a few beers. And uh, it was called the uh, Pierce Street Annex. It was a little bar, a little quiet bar, and I'd go in and have a couple beers. And one night I was in the Pierce Street Annex. There was not too many people in there. And there was a guy sitting down at a bar. And he said, hey, you want to shoot some pool? So I said, sure, I'll shoot some pool. So we start shooting pool. We shot maybe 10 games of pool. And we, we started talking. I told him, yeah, I'm going through law school here, uh, but I really want to be an Air Force pilot. I'm going to get out of here, and I'm going to go back and be an Air Force pilot. And he said, hey, I was a Navy pilot. He said, I, uh, I was actually a backseater. I was a, a non-flying officer, but I was a, a Naval officer, a Navy pilot. Do me a favor and before you make the commitment to the Air Force, why don't you go through uh, and check out being a Navy pilot? Go take the test. He, he said it's it's really a whole different environment than being an Air Force pilot, landing on aircraft carriers. And he said, do me that favor. So I said, okay, I'll do that. So Because you're still going back to the, the, the thing you saw in the magazine with the yeah, guy. I'm still going back. Still, no, my, my goal yeah. is to be an F-105 pilot mm-hmm. out of uh, flying out of Thailand. I want to I want to be Robinson Reisner. So I go back and I say, oh, I'm going to take the, uh, I go down to take the test at the Navy. I go back, I go down to the recruiter and everything. I said, hey, you know, I've, here's my background. Uh, I've already taken the Air Force test, but I thought I'd take the Navy test too, see how we're doing. So I took the, I took the Navy test, and I still remember this. It, this is a good part of the story. I took the Navy test. Back then, the, it's called a Stay 9 test. I don't know whether you ever heard of it. Mm-hmm. Stay 9 is a standard of 9. They rank you all different things, math, English, aircraft uh, stuff. And they, they show you pictures of it, the aircraft in different uh, configurations and upside down. And they'd say, what are, are you in a left turn? Are you in a right turn? But it, it was a fairly extensive tip, but a stay nine test. But the guy, the recruiter says, well, Mr. Larkin, you have qualified to be, to enter the Navy flight program. But I got to tell you, you got a zero on mechanical aptitude, a zero he says, I've never seen anybody get a zero. I've seen ones, I've seen twos, I've seen threes, but I've never seen anybody get a zero. You don't have the slightest idea how anything works. And you're like, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm trying to fly That's what it, I Jack. told him. I, I said, well, wait a minute. Now, you, you're not expecting me to fix it. He said, you got to be shitting me. I don't even want you to go near that plane except maybe to get in and fly Yeah, because you got to troubleshoot when you're in the cockpit. Yeah, well... I can tell but, you this, growing but, up, there wasn't a lot fixed around my house, right? I mean, I, the stuff I fix now, I didn't get from him. Okay. I can tell you that. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. he watched YouTube videos. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my dad, well, my, my dad, you know, my dad didn't. Anytime I say, dad, dad, the toilet's 
busted. He said, ah, God damn it, give me the telephone. I'd say, how's the telephone going to fix the toilet? He said, we're going to call the plumber. That's how the telephone's going to fix it. So he never knew how to fix anything. Anyway, I didn't, I had no idea. And I remember the recruiters telling me, hey, I got to tell you, I'd really like to follow your career and find out if there's a guy that doesn't have the slightest idea how anything works and how he is as a Navy pilot. So I said, well, we'll see. (laughs) We're going to give it a shot. I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether there's any correlation whatsoever. And it turned out there is no correlation because, I mean, I'm not blowing my own horn, but I turned out to be a pretty good Navy pilot. Yeah, but but take a step back. You had to go and tell dad, like, hey, listen, I I got a new plan. (laughs) And it's not being an international Uh lawyer. How did that go? Well, you know, the the fact (laughs) that- Did you do it in face or over the phone? (laughs) No, 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 no. the, The fact that- Hastings University said, hey, you know, you got some potential, son, but maybe but when you're, you're a little older. You're going to stay out of year. You're going to stay out of year. Yeah. Uh, and we'll let you a little come more back, but you're on probation for a year. So just go do whatever you're going. So I told my dad, dad, I'm just not cut out for this stuff. I know that's what you want me to do. But in my heart, I want to be a pilot. He knew I had taken the Air Force test. I said, I want to do that. And he said, uh, well, he went along with that. He went along with that. And I think I thought I figured he'd have been a little tougher on you. Come on, boy, give it a give it another shot, you know, just because it a lot of dads want their kids to live, you know, maybe that was his dream. Maybe he It was his dream. Yeah. Yeah. It was and, his dream. And, and he was living through me. Mm-hmm. So I, I went through the process. I, I, I wound up uh, I went in the Navy at, in December of sixty six and reported to Pensacola in sixty seven. Now I'm down at Pensacola for uh eighteen months of Three months of basic, uh, you know, with Marine drill instructors. I almost wondered every day. It was like going through SEAL training. And they kept telling you, you want a DOR, you want a DOR. And I think every morning I got up thinking, I want a DOR. Those Marine drill instructors are driving me crazy. One quick story. I had a Marine drill instructors. We were having room inspection. And Marine drill instructors talk funny anyway. I could never quite understand what they were saying. But they, and so they're in there and, uh, he grabs my soap dish. We're all standing at attention. There's four of us in a room. There's two marine drill instructors in there. Grabs my soap dish and says, Benedict Larkin, there's a cock air on your soap dish. There's a cock air on your soap dish. <laughs> and you're like, sir, you sound like you're from Shreveport, Louisiana and Brooklyn, New York at the same time. I didn't time. know what to say. He said, he said why is this cock air on your, on your soap dish? Now, I think he's saying hawker. Oh, like someone spit a loogie on your yeah, soap dish. Yeah, no, I think he's saying hawker. There's a hawker on your soap dish. That's what I think. No, he's saying cock hair. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Jesus. So he says, why is this cock hair on your soap dish? And I said, I guess it came out of my nose, sir. <laughs> and he said, a cock hair came out of your nose? How did a cock hair get in your nose? And after a little bit of discussion, it became obvious that we were talking about something other than a hawker. Yeah. And then the two drill instructors start. I said, no, I thought you said hawker. And then everybody in the room started laughing. And then we all got in trouble for laughing. But anyway. So where was the Vietnam War at this time? The Vietnam War at this time, when I was going through, was 1967. Mm-hmm. Excessive loss rates in 67. 66 and 67 were the excessive loss rate. The Vietnam War started in, in 64, built up in 65, the 66, 67, and into 68. 
where the heavy loss rates, the rolling thunder operations in uh, North Vietnam, where we were losing, the, the chances of surviving 100 missions in an F-105 were pretty limited. Most yeah. of them were getting to about 67. My hero, Robinson Reisner, was shot down and was a prisoner of war for, I guess, six or seven years. He get out? It, yeah, he, he, he made it out. Uh, but I do remember when we went through survival training, they showed us pictures of POWs, and there's Robinson Reisner, the real reason that I, you know, he'd been tortured and everything, and uh, it, it was not a pretty sight. But anyway, uh, so I was in in flight training in 67 during the real, when all the, Na- the Navy was losing their A-4s, Air Force was losing the F-105s. They were the two primary aircraft that, that we lost. In and just Vietnam. so people know, when you're talking about these planes, when you're talking about the F designation, those are fighters. When you're talking about the A designation, those are attack aircraft, right? Light attack. Yeah. You know, back in those days, now we have we have the F-A-18 and the F-A-18 is a combination fighter attack aircraft that performs both functions. But the Navy during the Vietnam War, the fighters were down at Miramar and they were either the F-8s or the uh, F-4s. And the attack aircraft, the light attack, was at Lemoore Naval Air Station in California, which is where Jimmy was born. Uh, there was always the rivalry between the fighter pukes and the attack pukes, and we used to badmouth each other. And uh, uh, But we all did our job. You know, the, the fighters would, would go up and would protect the strike group from the MiGs, where the attack aircraft, the attack aircraft, my base, which was eventually NAS Lamore, we had the heaviest loss rates of the war because we were the attack. And that's what they tried to shoot down you know, when we were en route to the target. Um, they wanted to shoot down the attack aircraft. So anyway, I got my wings in August of 68, and I figured, okay, I'm off to, off to Vietnam. Finally, it was still going on. It was a long war, so it was still going off to Vietnam. But I got plowed back to uh, plowed back means you're, you're taking you get your wings and you go back as an instructor for uh, 13 months. So they put me back as an instructor in prop airplanes at Pensacola uh, uh, training the newbies, training the new guys. So and, you know, I'm working with a lot of a lot of marine uh, helicopter pilots just coming back from Vietnam and stuff. And I'm here. I am. I'm just a. Kind of a, a nobody. I, I had no combat experience, but I got to know these Marine helicopter pilots pretty well. And one of them was, you know, his best man at my wedding. I was best man at his wedding. But I was a, an instructor in props for, for all those years. And it, it was at Pensacola that I met uh, Jimmy's mother. So That's why he has such a connection to Florida. <laughs> it's like, you know, I was wondering. And I always wondered about the state of Michigan, too. I never understood why it was a Michigan fan. But now, yeah. with uh, even with, uh, you know, your family being from there, you spending so much time there, oh. Mary going up and working in Michigan, well, listen, I think I'm telling that you right had now, something to do with it. Saturdays when I was growing up were holidays in my house. Saturdays during college football season were holidays. My mom would make a big spread. And you know what? If Michigan won, man, it was a great weekend, right? Everybody was happy. If Michigan lost... Just leave the old man alone. It's like Brown, Just, it's like Browns Monday. Yeah, for, yeah. For, for for Browns. Fans. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I, man, I all the bad words I ever learned in my life were learned on Saturday afternoons. Yeah, watching watching Michigan fumble or Michigan throw a bad pass or play Ohio State. But they were kicking Ohio State's ass for back a while then, back, back then. then. Yeah, well, back then, sixty nine to seventy nine were the Bo Woody days, mm-hmm. and then Schembechler lasted, I guess, until another at least another ten years, maybe until. Yeah. Shembeck was there about 20 years, and that's when Michigan was doing pretty oh, well. Oh, 
Amazing. So right. no, no fun anymore living in enemy territory, John. <laughs> <laughs> At least I won this time. So you're still, you're, okay, so you get done being an instructor. They have you do that for how long? I was there for 13 months, and I did okay there. Uh, we had to train some flight surgeons, and a flight surgeon who didn't want to have any part of flying really wrote up a very good evaluation of me as an instructor. And that kind of set me apart from some of the other instructors so that when I got my orders out of the T-28 down at Whiting Field, I got orders to A-7s. I got orders to A-7s on the East Coast. See, there was East Coast A-7s and West Coast A-7s. The Pacific Fleet was the West Coast, not the East Coast. So, but I got orders to uh, A-7 Squadron. And the A-7 is a single-seat attack aircraft. It, it replaced the A-4 as the Navy's primary single-seat attack aircraft. But no co-pilot. No co-pilot. And very, very little defensive weaponry, right? I mean, you had the two air-to-air missiles on the side, but most, your, your main payload were the bombs. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, there weren't too many A-7s ever really engaged in a fighter role, really. I, I, I'm not aware of any A-7s ever shooting down a MiG, but it was up to the F-4s to really keep the, the MiGs off of us. In fact, I know no A-7 ever shot down a MiG, but we had heavy loss rates. We lost 98 A-7s. We had heavy loss rates due to the, the mission, which was yeah. attacking the target. I just thought an instructor would have been someone that had spent a few years over right. in Vietnam with a lot of flights under their I mean, belt. that's like you going to driving school. You finish at driving school, yeah. right? And then they're like, you know what? You got to teach these You're going to teach all these kids coming up now how to drive. Yeah. But like, also oh. what you have to understand is that plane that he was getting into was relatively new. It was a rollout. The A-7? Yeah. Oh, it's brand new. Yeah, so they didn't have any World War II veterans that had much time. Because you got to realize, like, when you were Yeah, but in, he wasn't teaching them in the A-7. Oh, sure. He, yeah, was, he was teaching them, them prop in, planes, in the just, prop. just basics, right. for sure. Right. But when you think about that. All the guys going through the prop program were, you know, they eventually flew patrol aircraft or something. But they were flying. I was teaching them to fly. And that was, I had gone through the jet pipeline. I was pipeline. I was taught to be an a uh jet pilot with the Navy. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm an instructor in props. I don't know anything about props, but I had about 800 hours by the time I got out of there okay. in the prop airplane. Mm-hmm. And it, you're exactly right. It was kind of a weird deal as to why I would be plowed back, but there were a lot of plowbacks. I, you know, I guess we had, uh, they just needed yeah, instructors. They had, they had numbers to fill, right? They, they had know. to fill numbers and yeah. they wanted to probably take the best right. people that they were figured were, were good people persons. Right. And, well, you and, know, it's still the same way though. Because, you know, my daughter is going to uh, Kent State. She mm-hmm. is uh, in the aviation program, and she can be an instructor before she graduates. Wow. Before she graduates all four years. She just has to have certain certifications. But, I mean, she's just starting out herself, and she can be in that plane instructing other people. So it's still the same. I mean, I guess I get it. Was he get, her inspiration to get behind the stick? No. No? I, well, I think she— It has to have something to do with well, it. Well, I think she wanted to travel. Now, she does She does text him or call you, and, like, you know, the other day she flew through a cloud for the first time, and that sounds like it's not a big deal, right? It sounds like, oh, well, you're in a plane. Of course you're going to fly through clouds. No, that's a big deal. Yeah. Like, yeah. you got to be an instrument. You, you know, you get into a cloud and you can't see anything. Yeah. Right? You can't just— when you're starting out flying, start flying through clouds. So that was a big deal. And she called him that day to let him know, Hey, look, man, I just flew through a cloud. It was awesome. Yeah. But it was scary. I think she went that route because, and and maybe I'm wrong, but I think she is going to be my wanderer, right? She wants to travel. And she realized that she can travel for free. Yeah. Right. She can fly. Yeah. Now we tried to get her to go in the Navy. Uh Uh-uh. 
She was like, nah, bro. Yeah, no, she's like, listen, <laughs> and you know what it is? It's, it's, it's top gun, right? I mean, she's thinking, oh, I'm not, a, I don't want to be a fighter pilot. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, you can fly 737s yeah. for the Navy, you know, yeah. or, you know, yeah. you don't have to fly. There's plenty of cargo options. There's nah, nah, I'd rather spend 140 grand instead of getting paid 140 grand. Well, so. and that's the thing. There are, there are girls that have YouTube pages of them oh, yeah. just taking their, their flights and going places and, and, and hopping to, yeah. you know, different places and having fun and, and they're, they're good. And there's, there's guys that have the same kind of career where they're just, their job is to just fly. They're living their dream. They're yeah. living their best no, life. It's, it's great, man. She loves it. She loves it for sure. But let's, um, well, we got, we got to jump out to yeah, uh, let's, after, after flight, well, after let's flight get in, instruction. Let's get into Vietnam. I mean, so you're certified, I guess, or whatever on the A7, right? Well, the thing is, thing is, I initially got those orders to the East Coast. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I called my detailer and I said, I don't want to go to the East Coast. I want to go West Coast. He said, wait a minute, let me get you, let's get this straight. You'd rather go to Vietnam and risk it and shot down than go to the Mediterranean where you can just float around and go into these exotic ports and sit and sip wine. And I don't know. I said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to go to the East Coast. I joined the Navy. I just want to see what Vietnam's all about. I want to go to Vietnam. So send me to the Pacific Fleet. And I remember him saying, well, you get good enough fitness reports out of T-28s that, okay, I'll honor that. But I, I think you're crazy to be going to Vietnam. I said, well, it's up to me. <laughs> because it's still in your mind what, yeah. what you want to be. Robinson Reisner. I want to be Robinson Reisner. I mean, I want to stand next, next to my airplane with my uh, helmet in my hand. That's what I want to do. And I you wanna, did. I want to be a combat pilot. We got pictures. Yeah, I want to be pictures a, of oh, you and, a lot of pictures of my helmet. Right, right. Mike Nord. That's, I mean, that's one of the great pictures, man. For me, growing up, just you well, and Mike I just wanted there. to. So anyway, he changed my orders, and uh, so I go out to Lamore Naval Air Station. I, the RAG replacement air group is VA one twenty two. I go through there, get my training, and I get VA twenty seven, which is a uh, squad of the Royal Maces. Uh, I get assigned to VA twenty seven, flying the A seven E Corsair two. We're in Air Wing 11, and we're assigned to the USS Enterprise. It, it was really a great squadron. They, they eventually won the uh, Admiral McCluskey Award for the top attack squadron in the Navy for 71-72 because of missions flown and safety and everything Success like that. Success rate. Success and rate and everything mm-hmm. like that. So I was lucky enough to really hit a home run with the squadron I was assigned to, and I was on the world's largest warship, you know, the pride of the fleet, the USS Enterprise. So I really, I hit a home run really by, by going to the law school for one year and being delayed. Yeah. And yeah also, it all worked out for a reason, what you're saying. Also getting plowed back for that, that one year, I, I kind of hit a home run with that squad. Yeah. And you could have took the easy job. You could have been in the Mediterranean just yeah. checking out the sites and get, and doing all that, but you wanted to yeah. go, go deep. So let's talk about how deep it got. You know, I remember one very, when I got there, we started flying missions in July of 19... Uh, 71. And most of our missions then, the the flights up north, Rolling Thunder operations had been stopped in the uh, 68 because they were trying to negotiate peace with the North Vietnam people. And basically our missions from late 68 through spring of 72 were in Laos. Uh, We were working with forward air controllers in Laos and we would try to intercept the flow of supplies coming out of the Navy had two passes, Ban Karai and Mugia. That their, their passes coming out of North Vietnam into Laos, coming down the road network. They call it the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But yep. most of our most of my missions and most of the missions 
for my generation of uh, A7 pilots until we went back up north in 72 was flying out of Laos uh, and flying missions with uh, the forward air controllers out of Laos. It was a much lower risk than, than up north in Hanoi or Haiphong, which had the heavy uh, surface-to-air missile threats along with heavy AAA threats and MiG threats. But Laos, you know, when the North Vietnamese realized that we were uh, backing off up north, they transferred almost all of their air and aircraft guns down to Laos. So Laos was a pretty hot area. And Laos was a dangerous place to fly. We had a lot of guys shot down in Laos. Not a one of them ever surfaced. I never, I don't know whatever happened to them. I would talk to them on the ground. I mean, we were, our mission was also rescue. The A-7 had, could stay in the air for a long time. And if a pilot was shot down, we, we could take on scene command. And I had friends shot down and we would talk to, he's on the ground, he's alive. If that happened in North Vietnam, there was a chance he'd be captured and sent to the Hanoi Hilton or he'd be a prisoner of war for a long period of time. Laos, I don't know. They killed them all, I guess. Every every guy that was ever shot down in Laos never survived. Wow. So I, I have no idea whatever. It's, it's a mystery to this day to me because a lot of people were shot down in Laos between 68 and 72. And weren't they supposed to be an ally? Laos was? No, Laos, the, the path at Laos was uh, kind of on the side of, no, the ally was Thailand, not Laos, okay. Laos. Oh, I thought you said you were flying out of Laos, which meant, which I thought no, you meant we had over Laos. Okay, no, okay. I'm, I'm I thought you. Well, meant you the had for, he was saying the forward air controllers were in Laos, so he was flying out of Laos with those forward air controllers. Okay, so the forward air controllers were up there. If I'm forward if air I'm controllers right. were coming out of either, either Da Nang in South Vietnam or coming out of Thailand, and those forward air controllers would basically tell you, "Here's what we got today. Here's what we need." Forward air controllers would control that airspace. They knew that airspace that they were assigned. They were flying little prop aircraft. It was dangerous as hell, really. They were just flying these little slow prop-driven planes, but they would have a certain area of responsibility so that they would know, is there traffic in that area? I didn't know uh, what other mission they had until a little later, and I, I can get to that story. But they also had, they would stay in touch with reconnaissance teams, Navy SEALs, or anybody that was inserted, you know, in a, in a forward in Laos. There were, there were a lot of ground units in Laos that were long-range reconnaissance patrols or, or stuff like that. Yeah. So they would stay in touch with those kind of things. Have you ever refueled in the air? Uh, we, you know, I have yeah. just to practice, but we've okay. never... Had to? We never had to. We were running 1.8 cycles, meaning from launch to recovery was usually a 1.8 or 1.9. So we'd be off the carrier, we'd rendezvous, we'd go in, do our mission and get back. And so the A-7 didn't need, uh, the, you know, the f It wasn't like a B-52 that was hanging out all the time just doing its, yeah. its well, laps. Yeah, those B-52s the, uh, just stay forever. The F-105s that come from Thailand, they really had to uh, refuel all the time, refuel going both ways with the A-7. Now, sometimes... A7, I never had to do it. Sometimes if you're having trouble getting aboard an aircraft carrier at night and you didn't have enough gas to make a bingo was when you... Well, let's, you know what, let's talk about that real quick because I do want to get into Bankarai because that is, that's amazing. I mean, that's that's the night, right? December 7th, was it 71? Yes. And uh, it had to be on December 7th? <laughs> December 7th, 71 is the night and he's going to get into this story. That's the night that, that I almost lost my dad, uh, that I almost grew up. I was one year old at that point. Right. Yeah. So one year old, I would have grown up never knowing him. And that 
gives you, I've heard, gives, it, it does, chills, it does. Huh? It gives me goosebumps because I've heard this story and I know this story. And when I look back on how different my life could have been that night, it's crazy. But before we get into that, the whole, because Top Gun's out now. All right. Everybody's all excited about Top Gun and, you know, the, the Navy pilot. Well, one of the funny, one of the funniest things you talk about though. So what was your call sign when you were in the, in the Navy? Jim. <laughs> what? Jim. Now listen, I was partying with some pilots in Punta Cana just recently. And the guy told me who I was sitting next to said his call sign was Beetle. And, and you got Maverick and Viper yeah. and Iceman. And your, and your call sign, I'm sorry, Jim. your call sign was what? Jim. That's what's on my helmet. <laughs> it is what's on well, your helmet. you know, we never, here, here's the thing too. This is the most recent, because I just saw the new Top Gun movie and I'm part of the A7 Association. I'm on the board of directors for the A7 Association, which is a, an association of, of the guys that flew the A7. And we just had our meeting last Tuesday and I said, hey, guys, uh, one of the things that I could relate to in, in Top Gun was there's a guy in Top Gun named Bob. And they say, what's your call sign, Bob? And he says, Bob. And so I could, <laughs> I could relate to that. And every time I look at my helmet, that the helmet I had from 1977, it says, Jim. So I asked my buddies, I said, where did Because I got out of the Navy in 77 and I was still Jim. I said, where'd all these bullshit call signs come from? The anyway? Goose and the Mavericks and yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, and the answer was the F4s always tried to use call signs when they were talking to each other because they never wanted the enemy to know who was the leader. We were always lead two, three, and four. Like if I was flying on the leads wing, I was two. He'd say, uh, close it up two or close it up three or close yeah, it up four. Yeah, get in tighter. That was it. It was never close it up Maverick or close it up Billy Bob, close it up whoever you are. <laughs> so I said, where'd all these bullshit? Uh, uh, and they said it came from Top Gun and it came from the fighter community. They like to call people uh, Maverick or Iceman because they didn't want to identify who was the leader of that strike group so that the, the guys could focus on that. And I guess that makes sense. Mm. It and it's cool. It's just uh, funny to right? me. It's just because he does. He has his helmet, and the squadron at the time was uh, VA 192. 192. World famous Golden Dragon. Golden Dragon. So right. his helmet is like blue, this brilliant blue, and it's got this brilliant yellow Golden Dragon on it. And right in the front, it says Jim. That's all it says on the helmet Jim. There's there, no Maverick. But, yeah. But what if there was like a bunch of Jims in your squad? Like, uh, well, we didn't call each other Jim. It just my helmet said Jim. My yeah. helmet from Vietnam, uh, I see the pictures of that. It had a 14 on it because basically I was designated. Charger was our tactical call sign, and I was <clears throat> rocket 14, meaning I was the 14th senior pilot. Yeah. So my helmet said 14. So all I wore a helmet in Vietnam just said 14. That so was, did they change that number as you would move up? No. No, so I you just were, was 14 the whole time. Yeah. I never understood So guys that. got shot down and but you were still 14. Whenever we were, whenever we were in, in route or doing something, it would be, hey, close it up three or yeah. four. You are right. Hey, four, you're on fire. Hey, we never used any. <laughs> you're on fire. Hey, just no, to let you know. But that's how it, it wasn't like, hey, Maverick, you, you know, eject or something like that. So the one thing I want to talk about before you get there is, and I'm sure everybody's interested in it, is the carriers. Like how scary is it? to be landing on an aircraft carrier, pitching in the ocean, or especially at night. I mean, it's got to be terrifying every time. Uh, do you ever get used to it? Is it ever just old hat? Uh, I think it, it gets to be reasonably old hat on a, a day landing. I'm not old hat. 
I mean, your your heart rate is is high even a day carrier landing, but night is just something that that even sitting here thinking about it gets my heart rate way up. You know, wow. one interesting thing that uh, when I teach uh, active shooter for the FBI and stuff, I talk about heart rates and how you how you need to get your heart rate low to be able to th- function properly. And that's what I taught in the Navy. I became an instructor in how to penetrate defenses. But they put heart monitors on us in Vietnam to see what would happen to our heart rate under combat stress. So you're sitting in a cockpit, a surface-to-air missile is launched at you. What happens to your heart rate when there's no physical exertion whatsoever on your part? And they were getting heart rates up around 220, 230 <sighs> beats a minute. Crazy. Instantaneous. My max right now is 186. Rate. That's my max. Well, Unless someone starts talking about taking away your Second Amendment, then Jim might oh, get past that's one. Son of a bitch. Don't listen to that episode. I dropped more <laughs> F-bombs. Dad, I'm sorry. You raised me better. You raised me better. God damn it. But anyway. Oh, sorry. Well, no, I, I Dan, just get wanted back to, to because I, I know you guys are pressed for time. No, we're not. Coming aboard an aircraft carrier at night, they found out the combat surface-to-air missile engagements, high heart rates. Coming aboard an aircraft carrier at night, highest heart rates. So you could be seeing flak, catching flak, being flying flying through the flak, and be at like 160. <laughs> and then coming in for that night landing, it's higher. It's, oh, it's, it is. You're, you're, I mean, your heart rate is just pounding in your chest. You're white-knuckling the stick. You're trying to be real smooth. But coming aboard at night, it never gets to be old hat. Man, and how much of that is, how much of it is, obviously you don't want to die, right? You don't want that ramp strike. I mean, you don't want, you don't want your plane to erupt in a fireball, but how much of it, how much stress is there on you or how much pressure, how much pure pressure is there? Because you want to hit the three wire, right? There's four wires and you want to hit three. Right. So how much pressure is there? Like if you miss that four wire and you got to go. Right. You got a, right. what is it? Bolter, I think. Right. Bolter, Where, yeah. So you hit, hit the deck. You don't hit the wire. Boom. Now you got to take off. Right. Are you worried now when you come back, you're like, God damn it. I don't even want to deal with these guys. Yeah. Cause in my right. mind, you know, you're going to get ripped on by right. your, by right. your buddies that are like, or, Oh, nice landing there, Jimbo. Yeah. <laughs> n- n- nice landing Jim. <laughs> or, or you hit the one wire, right. And everybody else hit the three wire that night. I mean, it, how much of that plays in? Because I know you guys, I've seen pictures of that plane that landed on the wrong carrier. Remember that? I sent that to you. Yeah. This plane lands on the wrong aircraft carrier, right? He gets confused, whatever happens. And you knew that guy you said, right? That pilot. Yeah. Uh, but for whatever happened or whatever reason, he lands on the wrong carrier. And when they sent that plane back to the right carrier, it is covered in graffiti. People, they're writing all over the plane, calling them an asshole. Wow. Like, get the fuck out of here. They're, you know, I mean, it was unbelievable what they did yeah, to that same plane. Same team, guys, same team. Yeah. Nope. Oh, can you imagine landing that plane back there? <laughs> you know, with all these, oh, it was horrible. I'll have to, I'll have to find the picture and post it when we post this episode. It's unbelievable. They make a sign on the aircraft carrier that says, nope, turn around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> turn around, wrong carrier, dickhead. But yeah, I mean, were you ever worried about that? Or, oh, or was it just, no, look, I don't want to landing die. Landing aboard an aircraft carrier, there's always a bunch of competition and pride. You had LSOs grading each and every pass, the landing signal officer. He would come after you were already down. He would come and debrief you on what you did wrong. Your goal was an OK-3, an OK-3, no comment, or an OK-3 with some comments, little high start, little overshoot, little fast in close, little, or just a fair pass or... And they were graded from like four, three, two, one. 
And we had a, a, a board where you could keep track of all your passes compared to all the other guys. So there was a lot of competition in the in the ready room as, as, well, to, there, as well there should who, be. Who was the best coming aboard? I mean, a whole lot less, but kind of like when you're qualifying, you know, at the department or the FBI, your yearly qualification. Right. And I you mean, want to, you don't want to be at the bottom. Nope. Everybody's looking at everybody's scores, right? So, hmm. yeah, that that's it. I think the worst pass I ever had, I, I was a kind of guy that, that I thought, in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, if there's four wires there, why not give yourself a chance to stop with all four <laughs> instead of the perfect pass, three and four? Because I didn't like to bolter. I didn't like the thought of having to tank and go to Da Nang or anything like that. So I would always fudge on, on trying to catch a two. If I fudged too much, I caught a one, and ones were no grades. They didn't want to see a one because a one was a ramp strike waiting to happen. And when, he's, when, when you say ramp strike, just so people understand, that's when you hit the back of the carrier. You, hit the you don't even make the deck. You, know, you run into the back of the carrier. And almost always fatal, right? Because yeah. well, I mean, nobody hit. ejects. Because so you buddy, think you're going to be able to pull well, it off. Maybe if you hit the landing gear and it makes the thing nose down. Well, yeah, and you, and you see the videos. You yeah. see the videos where they yeah. slide by. Yeah, right. my buddy Gene Schmutty, who I, I lived with in Pensacola, he was an F-8 pilot. F-8s were t- the F-8 was the fighter version of the A-7. F-8s were tough to bring aboard, and Gene had a ramp strike. He lost his wings, but he didn't lose his life. He later later became a Western pilot, but he was a good friend of mine. So yeah, you can survive a ramp strike, but it's He ejected or he just ride it in? He, oh yeah, no, no, he, he ejected. Yeah. And then the, shame, night, the it, shame when you get back on the boat, man. Is, dude, once is, you're, yeah. I mean, one, I'm sure you, Every, your, your guys are glad to see Everybody's like, man, I'm really glad you're alive. Asshole. But bro, <laughs> what the fuck was that? Yeah, you're going to lose ranker for sure. <laughs> so we were, uh, one night I remember, it was a, a bad night. We were coming and I, I was... Everybody in the ready room is watching you come aboard, and you come aboard on a on a plat. It's filming from the the touchdown area, and it you want to be centered in those crosshairs for the guys in the ready room. That's where your perfect pass is to be right in the middle of that plat. And as I'm, I I watched it, and it gave me chills. As I'm coming in, I start going low, and I get the power, you know, power, power, power. I get what's called a taxi one, meaning I touch down so short of the one that I actually was starting to rotate, figuring I boltered, and then I caught the one wire. The commanding officer was not happy with that approach. I mean, he glared at me in that ready room like, what the f- <laughs> right. What were you thinking? You can, say, you can say, fuck, this is pop bless oh. America. <laughs> and I looked at it, and I, it, it scared the hell out of me. It, it was the well, first pass I ever flew in so my life. So let's, let's talk about scared the hell out of you. Let's get into band Karai. Um, you wrote a, a piece for the A7 uh, Association on Bancry. Now, I, I read it today. I've actually never read this, but I've heard the story from you. I'm going to step back, and I'm going to let you tell this story. This is the night, December 7, 1971, that I almost lost my dad. Would have never known him. Would not be sitting here with him right now. Would have never been raised by him. Would have never known him. I was one year old. So so this was a mission? It was a mission. Um Basically, we were we always flew uh, noon to midnight or midnight to noon. There was usually two carriers there, so you always had some night missions. Sometimes we'd work under flares. Sometimes we'd, we'd do some radar drops where we'd identify the targets or identify significant features and do offset points. But this uh, Commando Hunt 7 was an, it was an Air Force operation in the passes, Mugia and Bankarai. 
where they were putting B-52s and tactical aircraft into the passes at night to try to, they were bombing Bankarai and Mugia, which were the hot and heavy passes. They would have the B-52 strikes, but they would also want tactical aircraft to, to do that. And what we would do is we would identify a prominent point on our radar, type in some offset aim information, and that would then we would follow the steering. The A-7 would drop the bombs when it said you're over the target that you want to be over. You had to rely on the A7 yeah. telling you, right? Because it was automated. Well, yeah. um, here, here's it, it why, It was a though. system drop. But it was, the, the A6s were really good at it. The A7s, somewhat marginal. Needed some work. But we're, we're talking about, we're not talking about flying over Strongsville, Ohio, right, with the mall, right? We're talking about Laos, which right. is pitch black. <clears throat> I mean- All forest. Well, this particular night, sometimes if you had a full moon, at least you had a horizon. You, you could- you could tend this particular night, December 7th, our mission on December 7th was a three-plane strike against Bankarai Pass. We were supposed to do a, identify a radar aim point and then use offset information. I was in VA-27. I was the flight lead. Mike Shaw and Rick Clayton were on my wing. Uh, they launched Mike. Usually we go as a two-plane, but one is a three-plane. During all those years in Vietnam, in Laos, we had had a lot of AAA activity, anti-aircraft is what shot down it, but we never had any surface-to-air missile activity. So I had never seen a SAM before. And I had never done anything, it's called a departure from controlled flight. They were prohibited maneuvers in the A-7. The A-7 was very susceptible to departure from controlled flight. Meaning because what? Because it was underpowered. Huh? Meaning what? Meaning... You just run out of flying airspeed, and the the plane starts high pitch and yaw rates. It's it, it it's like somebody's pounding. Well, what I found is like somebody's pounding on your aircraft with a sledgehammer. Your plane is tumbling out of control. It's not flying anymore. You've lost the ability for controlled flight. So you're they, basically sitting in a rock. They call it a dead stick. No, no, no that's dead, not a dead no, stick. A dead stick is where you're still flying. There's still there's still airflow over your control surfaces, and you still can the plane will respond to your controls in, in a departure from control flight, no matter what you do with the stick, you can't control it. Okay. And it actually aggravates the situation. So I, I had no, no advanced uh, training in the A-7 departures and I had no, I had never seen a surface to air missile before. We launched and it was a completely black inkwell, pitch black night. There's no horizon whatsoever, no moon, no anything. Can't We're see on, the sky, can't see the ground. Can't see anything. And we're on instruments the entire time. Those guys are tucked into me. I got my lights on dim so that they at least have something. And they got their lights off. We go in south of the demilitarized zone. We turn north in Laos. And then we turn north, north uh, east uh, as I set up for a run into uh, Bankarai Pass to do the, we're all going to drop one. We're all going to drop at the same time. They're going to drop on me. When my bombs come off, they're all going to drop. So we're carrying eight. So we're going to drop 24, 800, or 500-pound bombs is what we're going to drop on one pass. So as we're setting up for the run, uh, again, I'm on instruments. It's pitch black. And I get a, what I call a rattlesnake strobe, but it's a, goes like that. And it's pointing at a surface air, a fansong radar. That a fansong radar, which is associated with a SA-2 SAM system, is pointed at you. Now I had seen I had seen that those strobes before when we got around the passes, but they they kind of look at you and then they disappear. And so I 
no one had ever shot at me. So I see that, and then it goes away. So I said, well, okay. So I keep going, and all then as I'm getting close to Bankarai Pass, and I got a good radar, I'm getting ready to do a good radar update, I see two illuminations in the pass. And to me, my first thought was, wait a minute, we got target conflict here. Those illuminations look to me like flares that we used to, because we used to work under flares. You know, if we knew there were trucks under us, we'd pop the flares and we'd, they'd illuminate the trucks and we'd dive in under the flares. And I thought, I knew there was no A-7 or no Navy aircraft in the past, but I thought there must be Air Force guys working under flares. What can this possibly be? I don't want to be dropping bombs on top of Air Force guys. And then that rattlesnake, that rattlesnake strobe got a little more, I still hadn't associated because I'd never seen a SAM. I didn't, what it was is the two SAMs had launched from Bankarai Pass, but I still thought they were flares. I don't know if we covered it, but SAMs, just so everybody knows, surface-to-air missiles, right? Surface-to-air missiles. They're launched from the they're, ground for the sole SA-2. purpose of destroying an airplane. Well, they're, they're and the, the important thing to know about the SA-2 system, which these were, they're designed against uh, high altitude. There's what brought Gary Powers down in the U-2. You know, they're, they're, they go to Mach 4, but they got little short, stubby wings. And they, the way you defeat a surface-to-air missile, if you're the target, is you wait for it to get close to you, and then you just put a high-G turning maneuver against it. And the little short, stubby wings, because it's going so fast, they can't maneuver with you, and it goes right by you. Right. Then all of a sudden, I go to a low warble on the audio. It's, it's like a police siren. It's telling you uh, guidance commands are being issued to the rear of that SA-2. And then also- So what that's picking up is from the, the launch station is now sending signals to that SAM to direct it to your plane. That's exactly right. Okay. It's basically what happens is the SA, because I taught this stuff after, you know, I became the expert in kind of this with the, the light attack weapon school. But what happens is the SAM boosters drop off after six seconds. They accelerate it to maybe Mach 1. And the boosters drop off and- in the rear of the SAM are the, the things that are going to use the guidance commands to make the wings move and try to get it in within 300 feet of your aircraft. Before detonation. Before a detonation or a proximity fuse. So the low, low warble audio says that the boosters are still on. When it goes to high warble, it says the boosters have dropped. It's telling you in the cockpit that strobe that you're seeing that's pointed at the fan song radars and now the warning gear, there's guidance commands being sent to the to the rear of that surface-to-air missile. So, so what it, that's telling you is, it's telling me these it's aren't, you. These aren't flares. Right, these but it's are, telling you it's you. Well, they're they're the putting it one. on you. It had to be us. We're the only ones there. Right. So it couldn't have been, it didn't have to be your plane specifically, just your formation. Well, it's yeah, coming, it coming at, at our formation, and we were really tight in, in our formation. But the, the, the two SAMs are coming after the three of us, and they're in tight to me. I figured, oh, my God, these are SAMs, and I, I go through that whole process. I got to keep them in sight. When they get close, I got to do a high-G maneuver. Problem is, it's pitch black at night, <clears throat> and when the boosters dropped off, they went into sustainer thrust. And what I did is the audio of the warning gear was so loud, I couldn't talk to my wingman. I wanted to tell them, take a cut. You know, we're, all, we're going to do this individually. We can't hygiene maneuver on at instruments at night at the same time. So I said, everybody take a 30-degree cut because I had to look down to turn that audio, warn, audio warning gear off. So then when I looked back, 
I couldn't find the SAMs because they were in sustainer thrust. And it was pitch black night. I had no idea where the SAMs were. So all of a sudden, wait till they get close and do a high G maneuver. It was kind of out the window. Because you didn't know the you, location. You can't see them. I have no way to judge when they're going to get close. So I thought to myself, well, what I'll do is I'll just go to my instruments and do high G descending S turns and hope for the best. Now we're talking about this over the course of minutes. Seconds. All this is going through. Well, I mean, we're talking about it over the course of minutes, but this is all going through your mind in 10 seconds. Milliseconds. Absolute milliseconds. Just trying to. I mean, you look down, you look up, all of a sudden they're gone. You're like, holy shit, Mm -hmm. I'm in a bad fucking place here. But I figured, okay, I'm going to take control of this airplane. I'm going to put on high G descending. And that way, even though I don't know where they are, I'll be putting high G on the aircraft and maybe the the missiles won't be able to turn with me. People that are listening, can would you equate this to like Top Gun when the MiGs fly past them? And you see Goose or you know, Maverick, whoever, is in the cockpit. And they see them go by and they're, they turn around. And they're like, God damn, there they, you know, where are they? Where are they? Is that kind of what it is? You, you look down, you, you see them, you look down, you look up, they're gone. Now, are you panicking? Are you looking? Are you like, shit? No, when I looked and they were gone, I thought, well, and I was still reasonably calm there. I thought, you know, I, at least I thought I was calm. I mean, my heart rate was probably way, way up there. But I thought, okay, just go back to the instruments and do that high G. Put the nose down, do that high G maneuver and hold. Nose down to pick up speed. Pick up speed because the A7 is, it's poor thrust, thrust to weight ratio. And I was fully loaded. I had eight 500-pound bombs had a full, almost a full load of fuel, mm-hmm. and it was going to be very susceptible to departure from control flight. But what had happened when I lost sight of them, and when I was trying to find them again, I lost my uh, instrument scan broke down. So I was no longer at straight and level flight. I was probably at about a 15-degree nose-up attitude and a 20-degree bank. My plane was not flying straight and level anymore. It was kind of yeah. drifting up into the... And I was losing airspeed fast because of the heavy weight. So there goes your high G turn. There goes my high G. And I thought, that's when I panicked. That's when I thought, holy shit, I'm nose up. I'm out of G maneuvering. I'm out of, I got to get the nose back down quick. And I got to get some G available on this airplane. The instant I touched that stick and tried to roll that aircraft back to get that nose down, it immediately departed from control flight. And it felt like a sledgehammer hit my plane. It was... I mean, the yaw rates, the, it was about 4G of yaw uh, getting smashed around in that cockpit. My head was hitting the canopy. And I was confused initially because I, I, I never had departed before. I thought, did I get hit by a SAM and it, whipped, it ripped my wings off? Or what happened to me? My plane is, it sounds like it's being, it sounds like it's just going to fall apart. Getting because battered. All the noises that are going on here. I'm so, just tumbling totally out of control. So basically at this point, anybody who's listening to this at home right now, Close your eyes, spin around five times, and start running through your living room with your eyes closed. I mean, you can't see anything. No, I can't. You don't know if you're up. You don't know if you're down. Right. You don't, I mean, you are completely. And that gyro is just all over the place. I can't even interpret what's happening with the gyro. Uh, A lot of guys, you know, wonder about ejection. I had made up in my mind a long time prior to this that I was just not going to eject. I didn't want to be a prisoner of war. Uh, I thought that would be the worst. I, I would rather survive or die, but I never wanted to eject. So ejection never even crossed my mind. I think, okay. But as I started tumbling, I realized, man, this plane is out of control. 
So you made the decision to ride it into the ground if you had to. Absolutely. Ejection never even entered my mind. I was either going to ride it into the ground or I was going to, I thought I was going to ride it into the ground. That's what I thought. I said, oh man. And that's when all the, in milliseconds, I started thinking about, I can't say goodbye to anybody. This is ridiculous. Within 10 to 15 seconds, I'm just going to be vaporized. I'm going to hit the ground. It's not going to hurt one bit. All of a sudden, I'm going to be gone from a conscious mode to I'm gone. I'm absolutely gone. And I, I think that today, to this day, I was just, and I wasn't like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. It was just, I was so sorry. It was just a, a feeling of, of just being sorry that I wasn't going to be able to talk to anybody anymore. I wasn't going to be able to see Jimmy grow up. I wasn't going to be able to see my parents. I wasn't going to be able to see my family. I was. It was just a terrible. I should have went to law school that day. <laughs> no, no that, that never crossed my mind. Of course I not. I, yeah, I hated law school so much. I'd rather crash into Bancroft Pass and go back to oh, go back to law school. So anyway. Um, but then I, I realized a guy named D.D. Smith had done all the flight testing of the A-7. D.D. Smith uh, was really a Navy hero. He was, you know, in, in, in a lot of good missions. And he wrote the NATOPS, that are our operating procedures. And I remembered what he said. The A-7 will fly itself out of a departure. Anytime you're on the controls, you will aggravate the situation. So just let go of the stick and hope for the best. It's going to take maybe ten to 15,000 feet of altitude loss, but it will survive. It will get itself out after ten to 15,000 feet. Well, I had started out this thing at 15,000 feet, so I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be a little close, and I had the heavy load of bombs and everything. It's made it worse. Yeah, but anyway, I just took my, I took my hands off, and I could feel that the oscillations were starting to stop. Um, and I wasn't worried about dying anymore. I just say, do what the NATOP says. Just let let the airspeed build up and hope that there's enough altitude left here. For the plane to figure it out. Plane to figure it out, and you can recover this plane. As I was going down again, milliseconds were running through. I'll never see, I owe me, but not, not any fear. That's what amazes me, just complete calm and sadness of I'm dead. I'm dead, I'll never say, you know, I, I can't tell you how much that went through in my mind. But anyway... I feel like, holy smokes, this plane's starting to develop some airspeed and the horrendous pitch and yaw rates are starting to subside. Maybe I'm going to be able to get out of this mess. And as soon as I felt some airspeed start to come over the wings and realize I got a little bit of G available to start the recovery, I went to what we call salvo jettison. It's a big red button right right here, right next to my left hand. I salvo jetted and blew everything off below the wings, bombs, uh, retainer racks, everything. I cleaned off everything below the wings and getting rid of all that weight, things really uh, significantly improved to where I could feel the airspeed coming up. And But I, I, I was in a 110 degrees inverted dive and I'd never been inverted on instruments. I didn't know. I mean, I was trying to look at the, the attitude gyro thing. What, what, what is my attitude here? Because again, it was pitch black. But I was upside down. So at 110, you are upside down and probably about here, right? I'm right like this. That's when the oscillation stops. I am in 110 degrees inverted dive. Upside right. down and upside down. almost and, and straight from, down. And from my view, it looks like if that plane was flying straight and then did a backflip, and I can see the belly now, yeah. and it's pointed, but not 100% down, but right. at, at an angle. So what I did is I gingerly rolled it around to where I was in a 70-degree dive. And I could tell 
you know, I could tell from the attitude gyro, right? I'm in a 70 degree dive. Every time it went around, it was a thousand feet loss. And it was, it was going, ticking. It, oh, it was going so fast. I, I was like, oh, you got to be shitting me. I'm dead for sure. It's just a matter of time before I hit the ground. I was 100% convinced of that. But then once I got rid of those bombs and everything, I could feel I'm starting to get a little G available. I don't want to, I don't want to panic and induce more of a departure in here. So be gentle, start it up. And I could feel it starting up, starting up. And then on the thing I got on the attitude gyro, I got the nose a little bit above the horizon. And so now you're not losing altitude, I'm not losing altitude. And I never, but I never looked at what that altitude was. So, and, and this is one of the things you always told me. It's amazing to me. You don't know if you were 5,000 feet or you were 500 feet, five feet, 50 feet, 50 feet. I have no idea. I mean, you could have been treetop level. You have no idea. Well, one thing that I that I remembered in, initially, or one thing that, that impressed me initially is as I started to get the nose up, I was slow as hell. And Bancarai was a hotbed of AAA activity. As I started the nose back up, I was slow, and tracers were gone. Oh, I was used to watching tracers come up from the ground, arc towards me. Now the tracers were above me. And I was thinking, holy smokes, did I misinterpret my attitude gyro? Am I inverted? Why are the tracers above me? So you're below the mountains. Yeah, I was below the mountains. (laughs) The tracers were coming. They were above me. And I thought, this can't be. I I mean, how can tracers be above me? I I have to be very, very low. They they had to be shooting at my sound. They could hear me. I was at full power trying to climb out of Bancarai, but the tracers were above me. I'm really very lucky that they, they didn't, but they couldn't see me. I climbed out with those tracers. So I, I know I was low. I bet, I don't know. I bet I was a thousand feet, maybe. I, I just have to imagine someone on the ground was watching going, oh, this guy's done it. He's, well, they couldn't oh, see anything. Oh, and he pulls it out. They couldn't see anything. <laughs> you know, All they could hear, they could hear him. Yeah, they could hear me at full power. Yeah, I'm just saying right some random guy on the ground they, just they happened were blazing to be away at seeing me. you come in and going, he's toast, he's toast. He's, oh, and he pulls it out. Like, they, they couldn't see that. All they hear was, they could hear my jet engine at mm-hmm. full power. So I know they had to be shooting at that. But the fact that they were shooting and it was such a flat trajectory that I, I know I was low. So did, did you get to get back to your squad? Yeah. Well, so what are, what are, um, Shaw and who, who's the other guy? Uh, Rick Clayton, you, you know, what the, were they, they doing? Well, they realized what it, they just, I couldn't even, we, we were uh, so disoriented there by that time that how long did this I, whole I told, thing take whole thing from the time you, you departed to you recover. What do you think? Less than two minutes, maybe a minute. I don't know. Wow. It was it was a very intense, very short thing. But I I told those guys, I said, hey guys, I you know I screwed this up. I departed. Uh, I had to jettison everything. I don't have any bombs. And their I, bombs are supposed to drop on yours. Yeah. And I Mike Shaw was uh, he was senior to me anyway. Uh, I said, Mike, you got it. If you got, I don't know what you guys want to do. I'm out of out of ideas here. I departed. I'm going back to the ship. I'll see you back in the ready room. So I said, you got the flight. And, they just, I, I think they wound up dumping their bombs someplace. I don't know whether they got back together. I don't even remember what happened, but. So when you but, dump everything below the wings, the pylons stay. The right? pylons stay, but, but everything below rack, that. Yeah, the, these are the, all these things go. These are the pylons. They mm-hmm. stay, right. but all these, these little things here, they go. So did your, all the bombs were still in the retainer rack. So three bombs at a time would fall just together. Yeah, they were all still attached to the retainer racks, and so they never. I, basically, I gave the North Vietnamese eight. 
Yeah, I, I mean, that's what I, I guess that's what I was saying. So they never armed. They just fell no, like rocks and just they hit were, the ground. They were, they were safe and when they went. And, and I'm still embarrassed to this day. And I said that in my write-up. I'm embarrassed to this day that, I, you know, because of my what I guess was poor airmanship, I, I didn't meet the mission was to drop the bombs, not jettison and, and screw give them, everything yeah, up. Yeah. And, uh, and I can understand your feeling about that. And you can also understand that it was what needed to happen for you to continue on. And do another mission. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I, it scared me. And I, I was never scared prior to this. After that, I realized how fragile naval aviation can be that you just never know. I was scared every mission after that. I, you know, I, I was a schedule writer for the, the uh, crews. Basically, when the targets would come in at night, I would schedule the pilots for it. And I always knew which were the bad missions. I would lay awake at night just trying to trying to keep myself. I always kept thinking about the University of Michigan marching band taking the field to settle me down because I was scared shitless after that because I almost died. I bet. So you get back after this departure and I would imagine you debrief and you write up your stuff. After all that's done, after you, you talk to your guys, I'm sure your guys didn't bust your balls on this. Everybody realizes exactly what happened there. Did you call mom or did you tell mom what happened? Or did you just kind of leave her in the dark on that? No, I, I think I wrote a, I wrote a letter. I wrote, I immediately wrote a letter to my parents. I, I wrote a letter because I think part of the, the issue that I had and anybody has when they're facing death, they think, man, I didn't say enough to the I got people. shit. I got to say that I, I just didn't, you know, I, I definitely wrote a letter to my parents. I wrote saying, Hey, I appreciate everything. I know it was hard with my mom being sick and, I just appreciate everything you did for me. Stuff like that. I love you very, I love you very much and stuff like that. So obviously it affected me. Do you remember the letter you wrote to mom? Do you still remember it or no? No, I don't. You don't remember what you said? No, why? Do you? No, I don't. No, I, I, I wish. I looking back now, I wish. I'm sure I said the, roughly the same thing. I just wonder what goes through your mind on something like that. I mean, that's 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 legit near death. I mean, that's not that's think, not me going to work and going into a, a hairy situation. I mean, that's, it's over. I'm dead. You've, he, he already accepted it. Yeah. Yeah. Peace. I'm at peace with what, what's about to happen here. And then he gets out of it and he's like, holy shit, I got shit to say to people, man. You know, stuff I should have been saying that I never said. I, I, I would assume that's exactly right. If, if you're a police officer and you've been shot and you, you know, hey, this ain't going to, this is not going to be good. This is that I don't have a long time left. I'm I'm sure that what goes through your mind is total sadness that you didn't say certain things to certain people. It has. And I think that's, I think that's important to, uh, I think it's important to realize right now, right? If you're sitting at home right now and you're listening to this and when he says that, that that one person flashes through your mind that you're like, look, man, I'm in that position. There is something I should have said to this person that I never said. And if you have that going on right now, Life's short. You don't know. I mean, you could depart from controlled life right now, right? Your life is on autopilot and you step into the street and a fucking bus hits you and you're never going to get that chance, man. Yeah. So, uh, you know, make it right. Say what you got to say. Well, you know, I I remember I sent a letter to granddad and granddad and I I told him how much I appreciated everything. And I told him in the letter, I said, you know, as I was tumbling out of control, I, I thought about how much effort you guys put into making sure I, I was uh, on the right track in life and everything. <laughs> and here's my dad. 
after I got back and after I talked to him in person. Why the hell are you thinking about shit like that? You ought to be thinking about getting out of that mess. That's the way he was. <laughs> you got to know my granddad, man. I, you know, that's one of the things I always remember when I talk to you about is whenever we'd go see him and he was just, I mean, he was granddad, man. He was, it was his way. But whenever he'd go to the hospital or he'd go to see a doctor, I just, every time he'd come back and he would talk about his trip to the doctor, he's like, you know, you'd ask him, Hey, how'd your appointment go? Ah, all those doctors, a bunch of goddamn bums. Every <laughs> single one of them, every doctor was a goddamn bum. <laughs> so moving on from this, from, I mean, you almost die in an airplane. Like, uh, Better people than you probably would have said, I'm done. I'm out. I can't, I can't do this. Like the original Top Gun. Remember when Goose dies and, and Maverick leaves Top Gun? He's like, I'm out. I, I can't do this. But you didn't do that. How about like the next couple times you're going up? You said that you, you saw, you know, some of these missions coming up and you were just, I mean, just yeah. in the pit of your stomach. I mean, are there times that you remember when you were about to go up and you were like, fuck me? Well, that's a good question because it brings back my last mission. My last mission, I remember I was sitting there by the airplane getting ready to get in and the plane captain walked up and he said to me, you okay, uh, Lieutenant? I said, no. He said, you don't look good. And I said, I don't feel good. I feel like I'm going to throw up. And I was scared. This is my last mission. So we go and we're working with a uh, forward air controller in the DMZ and the forward air controller, he has a communications network that, that he set up. And I'm number three in the flight. So we get in, we check in with him. And I, I remember a couple things about that flight. Uh, he says, okay, he tells us what the target is. I'll be in for the mark. He said, we got 233757 in the area, but no one's been active. That's 233757 millimeter. No one's been active. Okay, so we go into kind of a daisy chain. We're talking about anti-aircraft. Anti-aircraft, but that hasn't been active all day. Okay, so this is my last mission too, so I just want to go home. So he says, I'm in for the mark if you're ready. So he goes in, and as he's marking the target with his Willie Pete rockets, they shoot the shit out of him. I mean, there's tracers crisscrossing all over him, behind him, everything. And he pulls off and says, okay, you guys, just like nothing ever happened. Okay, you guys got the target? And so I said, uh... I think he was a yeah, he was Covey fact. I said, Covey, uh, while you were in that run, they're shooting the shit out of you, buddy. He said, what? I said, have they been shooting the shit out of you all day? He <laughs> says, I don't know. I said, well, they were, I said, they were shooting the shit out of you then. I said, yeah, they had tracers crisscrossing all over you in that run. And he was like, uh. So anyway, first, so he, we get the target. First guy goes in, pulls off real high the bombs just puke. They go nowhere near the target. And he says, hey, guys, you know, now we're A-7 pilots. We're Navy pilot. He's an Air Force guy. He says, guys, come on. You guys pulled off a little high there. And the lead says, hey, man, this is our last hop. We ain't coming down there. And he says, oh, okay, I can understand that. Next guy goes in. Number two goes in. He pulls off high, pukes the bombs all over. Doesn't even come close to where he's supposed to hit. And I said to myself, Self, this is fucking embarrassing. I mean, we're Navy A-7 pilots. We're better than that. And he's going to go back to wherever. He's going to go back to Da Nang and say, ah, these guys, you know, I found the target. I'm risking my life. They're shooting the shit out of me. And these guys wouldn't come down. 
They said it's their last flight and they wouldn't come down. So I said, I'm going to go down. So I did. I pushed it all the way down and I got the target. And I pulled off and he was ecstatic. Hey, good job, good job. Uh, you got it right on. And uh, so we're, we're starting to, to exit towards the Gulf of Tonkin. And he, he comes up and he says, hey, three. And I said, uh, yeah. He says, good job, man. And that kind of put my whole Vietnam experience in perspective for him, you know. I did what I needed to do. I was scared shitless. thought I was going to get shot down. But the fact that he said, I appreciate it. Good job, man. Yeah, he didn't know the amount of weight that was going to carry when he said it, I bet. Oh. Right? I but, mean, it stuck with me forever. It was like somebody mm-hmm. in Vietnam was saying, good job being here. Yeah. Yeah, to be appreciated for for risking it, right? Everyone else walked it out. And you, yeah, they and did. You, and then you, we went back there. to risk it. Went back there and landed, and I had typical shitty approach and uh, the other two guys had great approaches and the number two guy said said to me in the ready room he said you know we come back here and we get good grades on our approach but you were the only one that had the guts to destroy the target and you got a bad you got a bad grade (laughs) yeah well Well, we can't win them all we can't win them all uh the last thing here i i know there's one you wanted to talk about uh when you were on on the catapult that day and I hate to do this too because I know it's going to be another tearjerker. Um, no, it's not a tear. It just it's. I always, from day one, when I read the thing about Robinson Reisner, I always questioned whether I was capable of doing what I wanted to do, whether I was even capable of being an Air Force pilot or a Navy pilot. And I thought, well, you're not going to know until you try. I didn't have much confidence in my my ability. I was a, a shitty instrument pilot. I mean, I was great in air-to-air. I remember one of my instructors at advanced training saying, man, you're one of the best air-to-air pilots I've ever seen. But then I get to instruments, and it's like, holy shit, you're, you're not a very good instrument pilot. So everybody had their strong points. But anyway, someplace in that cruise, uh, we're getting ready for a strike, and the, the handler comes up to me and points at me and, and gives me a finger indicating you're number one for the launch. I'm bringing you out now. You're number one. So he brings me out. And usually when you're getting ready for a launch, you got all sorts of stuff going on. Your taxi directors, you don't want to go over the side. You're making sure you're not going to run into everything. You're folding your wings. You're doing all your checking, everything. But he gets me up on the catapult. And then the, the shooter, the guy that's going to shoot you, he comes up and he, he flashes four fingers at me saying, you got four minutes to launch. Open your canopy if you want. He, he goes, he gives me the signal to open my canopy. So I open my canopy, the ship's in a turn looking for the wind. We got to come into the wind and I can see the destroyer out there and I can see the American flag. And it just gave me, it gave me four minutes to think. You did it. You're here. Yeah. You're at the tip of the spear right here. You're number one on this launch. It's, it's the world's largest warship. You're in the best squadron. It, it was just such a, a moment of understanding that for everything... You know, what you went through with your mom being sick, you, you did it. Yeah, I made it all worth it. It did. It was that, that four minutes of just just thinking about, just thinking about it, I did it. Made me proud. Yeah, you soaked it all in, understood, and then put. And then you got to put the canopy down and go do the job. Yeah, put the right? canopy down and go do the job. 
come back and get a taxi one wire, you know, almost have a rap strike. <laughs> Shit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, all right. So listen. listen, man, we are far into this episode and for the first time ever, we are going to have to split this episode. Um, we're going to come back next week and part uh, two, part two. And you know, <laughs> well, now you fucked up my whole thing. <laughs> my dad fucked up my whole thing here. Only been three times in my life that I ever heard my dad cry. Mm-hmm. One was when he was talking to me when him and my mom split. Uh, the other was when his mom died. And until today, God damn it. Oh, ass, I, I, this is crying. This is just, this is. Oh, no, it is. It, and it's okay. It's okay. Uh, but the other time, the third time that I ever remember him crying was, I used to have a project I did called the first person experience where I told stories real life stories from people. And I was interviewing him on his deck out in back of his house. And he told me a story that we call Chicago. Um, halfway through, he started crying and uh, the toughest guy I've ever known in my life. And when he started, I remember I was sitting there, I was like, shit, what do I do? Fuck. You know, I mean, I just, so I just shut up. Yeah. And that's the story we're going to start with next week. I hope you guys can join us next week. This has been a crazy episode for me. I didn't expect it to be quite as emotional as it is, uh, but here we are. I hope you guys enjoyed it enough that you are looking forward to next week. Um, these these two episodes will run consecutive for sure. Uh, so anyway, for this week. Yeah, yeah, this was awesome. I think it's really cool to get down here, and, and we have plans to do this uh, a little bit more in the future uh, with the same kind of people as Jim is sitting here, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. All right, so uh, for this week, as always, we thank you guys for your support. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, if you could drop us a like, drop us a five-star review, that really helps us out. You can find us on Facebook at Pod Bless America. And you can find us on Twitter at Jim and Dan Show. You can find us on Getter at Pod Bless America. And you can find me at Jim at PBAPodcast.com. And you can find me at Dan at PBAPodcast.com. So until next time, I'm Jim. I'm Dan. And Pod Bless America. 